1982, I, I took the first of several trips to Israel. And one of the most memorable moments was at, at the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is one of the most desolate, isolated, forsaken places on earth. Even the fish that come down the Jordan. Uh, if you look at the mosaics uh, of the River Jordan going into the Dead Sea, the fish are turning around. They don't even want to go there. The ones that do, of course, uh, die. The only permanent settlements there are a few factories, a handful of hotels uh, for tourists, and uh, nothing much else. There's not much there. The name, the Dead Sea, has been around for over 2,500 years. Uh, in antiquity, it was also known as the Stinking Sea. How would you like to have... I live over by the Stinking Sea. But it was also known as the Asphalt Sea. Because it bubbles up asphalt. Still does. Uh, the Egyptians coveted the tar that they could get from uh, the uh, sea. And it was a part of their mummification uh, process that they used. You may know, if you don't, I'm going to let you know right now, that the shores of the Dead Sea are the lowest dry land on the face of the earth. It's the lowest place uh, on earth. I believe it's about 1,200 feet below sea level, something along those lines. Now, they've routed the river, uh, not the river, but the waters from the River Jordan so much that the Dead Sea is... Uh, lowering, it's dropping at the rate of about three feet per year and has been for the last 60 years. Uh, when I was there in uh, 1982, it would be considerably higher than it is today. But I, I was able to swim, or should I say uh, float in the Dead Sea. I've got this great photo of me and I've got these three flat rocks on my chest and my legs and my arms are sticking up and I'm just, I'm just floating, I'm just floating there. As an aside, oh, by the way, if you ever go there, uh, understand that you have any cuts or abrasions, uh, they will sting. The, the minerals in the water are just, uh, just so strong. Just don't be surprised. Uh, it, it's, not, uh, it's not doing you any harm. For all its lifelessness, I mean, after all, only a few bacteria live there. Ezekiel 47 uh, verses 8 through 10, provides a little-known prophecy about the Dead Sea. And it reads like this. Of course, this prophecy is to occur during the millennium. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah and enters into the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Now, this water that's flowing is from the River Jordan, the sea that they're talking about is uh, the Dead Sea. The water will become fresh and everywhere the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the water goes, where the river goes. Fishermen, this is a desolate place, Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From the Engedi to the, uh, the Enig Laim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. 
its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea, meaning the Sea of Galilee. Now, we might say to Ezekiel, yeah, uh, you know, Ezekiel, that's, that's all a metaphor. That's talking about spiritual bounty. It's talking about the blessings of God and encouragement and the things that give life. Now, all of that, of course, is certainly uh, true. But when I read the Bible, the way I read a text, if the meaning is clear, I seek no other meaning unless it's otherwise explained in Scripture. So my understanding of Scripture is that when it says that God says the Dead Sea will be healed, the Dead Sea will be healed. Now, how can this be? Well, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, and this is fascinating to me, it's so interesting. Something's happening even right now. Now, if you have watchful eyes, God uh, specializes in uh, giving little encouragement to people whose, whose eyes are, are open. So, uh, you know, just a moment ago I told you that three feet a year for the last 60 years, yep, do the math. I don't do public math, so I used my calculator before. That's 180 feet lower than it was in 1960. Isn't that remarkable? That's an amazing thing. In fact, there's a thing that they, in the, the Dead Sea, it's called uh, the Lisan. Now, Lisan in Arabic means a tongue, and it's no longer a tongue. It's actually a, a bridge from Jordan all the way over uh, to Israel. It's just a land. I mean, even when we were there, the... Uh, I suppose it was known to the authorities, how could you not, but the, the Jordanians and the Israelis would play soccer out on the fields out there. I mean, it's, it's just it's an amazing thing. But here's the deal. As it's gone down, over 6,000 sinkholes have opened up. Some of those sinkholes are as large as small lakes. And do you know what? They're all filling with fresh water. They're all filling with fish. There are fish all around the Dead Sea. Now, what makes that interesting is that the Jordan has virtually been cut off to a trickle that goes into the Dead Sea. So where's this water coming from? Well, as it turns out, there are underground springs of fresh water that are just flowing like fire hydrants into these things. A recent diving expedition, they went down and there are jets of fresh water flowing up in hundreds of places all around uh, the Dead Sea, underneath and into the Dead Sea itself. It's an amazing thing that is happening there. There are enormous freshwater springs underground. And I don't know, but that during the millennium, the Lord is simply going to open that up and then the Dead Sea will become, will become alive in its totality. It's an amazing thing. He is healing, even now, the Dead Sea. This place that has had no life in all of recorded history now has life abundant around the fringes and around these water jets, fresh water jets underneath the sea, life is forming. It's an amazing, it's an amazing, not fish, of course, but life. But please hear me about this. 
The greater miracle is not that the Dead Sea is healing or will be healed. The greater miracle to me is that you and I were every bit as dead as the Dead Sea ever was. But at some point when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit, a river of living water began to flow through us and in us and around us and eternal life began. And although we fear death, the truth is we were already dead and came to life. And now we will transition at some point in one way or the other, but we will remain alive. There's a story that's well known to all of us, but it bears noting here as well. And that's John 4, the story of the woman at the well. We're familiar John 4 tells us a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And I I love the way the old preachers used to do this. They would say, for Jews have some dealings with Samaritans. For Jews have little dealings with Samaritans. No, the scripture says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, You know, I love all these stories of Jesus. We even heard one this morning about uh, Jesus and uh, what what his uh, body meant and what his 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 blood meant. He's continually trying think of Nicodemus. Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? I mean, this is nonsense, right? But he's trying to get them out of this wooden literalism and bring them up into a higher level of understanding. Here the woman is, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. (laughs) Jesus is just patiently, patiently, you know, there with her. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water leading, welling up to eternal life. Eternal life. I mean, some may say, but my heart, like the Dead Sea, has been dead too long. There's no hope for me. My existence, my soul is crusted over with lifeless salt. Yet there is hope. The living water from Christ gives hope even to the lifeless. I mean, this is nothing other than resurrection power, the power of Christ to give life to the lifeless, hope to the hopeless, courage to the discouraged and peace for the anxious. 
But there's more, and that's where it brings us to our text in Revelation chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. I'll begin with verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, this is not the river spoken of by Ezekiel. Actually, Zechariah spoke of it as well. Uh, That is for the millennium. But the river here is a precursor that Ezekiel spoke of. It's a, it's a picture of this river. And in, in your versions, you'll see a river of life and you'll also see the river of life. And while it does not have a definite article in front of it, the construction makes clear that this is the river of life. Any other river of life, that there ever was or has been, has its source, its foundation in this river here. This is ultimately the river, the water spoken of by Christ to the woman. A couple of little interesting things. I just love these different little words that you find. The Greek word, tamas, is translated river. Or stream, you may uh, you recognize it from horse and river, which is hippopotamus, right? Hippopotamus. It comes. It means river horse. That's what they named it. Uh, it might interest you to know that those with classical educations back in the day, meaning that they had learned Greek and Latin and so forth, found it quite humorous that the Potomac River. And by the way, if you say, if you change that hard C to a soft C, you actually have the Greek word uh, for river. It is nevertheless a transliteration of an Algonquin word that sounds suspiciously more Greek than it does Algonquin. But this water, this living water, is described as bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, given that this is the restoration of all things, our, our minds are forced back to Eden, where all there in Eden finds its fulfillment here in, in this text. The river in Revelation 22.1 calls to mind, of course, the river which turned into four rivers. And the trees and the fruit of the Garden of Eden, we're told that in Genesis 2. We're told here that on the banks of this river on both sides, there are trees that grow and bear fresh fruit monthly. I mean, how cool is that? And then they also sprout leaves with healing effect. What John is describing here is Eden restored. And that's what we have. Now, most significantly, the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That indicates the water's source. Again, Revelation is filled with highly symbolic uh, language, but we needn't take away from the literalism simply because there's symbolism uh, present. And so, In my estimation, if God said the Dead Sea would be literally healed, 
then consequently I believe that there will be a real river running from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, many commentators, they deny that. They say that's, that's, uh, that's silliness. That's fine. Again, as I said last week, none of us will care when we're there. Uh, I believe that based on the Word of God and how literal prophecies have been fulfilled, my uh, belief is that literal prophecies will be fulfilled. So they say it's, no, that's simply baptism, and, which is fine. Uh, or it's the grace of God proclaimed through the preaching of word, the word as it flows forth, and, and that's fine as, as well. And others still say it's the peace of God upon the, the nations. Now, all of these have value, but I do see something more. John 7, chapter 7, verse 37 reads this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, when you combine that with Ezekiel again, 36, 25 through 27, he tells us this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, the background of all of this, it should be easily and clearly understood. And that is in the desert, water is life. I mean, we lived over there for a good long while and you 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 feel that existentially that water is life and in the book of uh, Ezekiel water is symbolized uh, or the I should say water symbolized the reception of the holy spirit it represented the cleansing that takes place in a person when they put their trust in god and we find precisely the same thing in the new testament jesus offered life-giving water to those who believe. And water, of course, is also uh, symbols of other things such as spiritual prosperity or whatever it might be. Those things are impossible regardless without the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is where I'm coming to here. This river, an actual river flowing from the throne of God in the Lamb, signifies none other than the third person of the Godhead. Where the Father is, the Son is, and where uh, the Father and Son is, the Spirit is there also. Our Holy Spirit, our, our paraclete, the one who intercedes for us, who regenerates our dead spirit, who grants those who believe life, 
who indwells, seals, baptizes, guides, and ensures that we move to maturity. Just a a few more things to note about the city here. There's also a broad street running uh, through there. Now, John notes that the river runs from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of this broad street of the city. Revelation 21, 21 told us that the broad street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So I, I say a couple of things about the road and then a couple of things about the gold. So first, this road is broad and airy and inviting. It's, it's actually more like a... Uh, it's more like a large open uh, space, uh, more like a forum kind of a thing, except for one that just continues on down. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you know that the roads there are quite small, and they were quite small then. So this is this large road where people, uh, the redeemed, gather to worship uh, God. And so for the believers of that time where they, they had to hide in uh, underground, and they weren't able to proclaim God publicly without fear of uh, loss of life or economic status. They are in a place where they can uh, worship God uh, publicly. What a what a wonderful thing that is. The second thing that we see is that through the middle of the street. And on either side, we mentioned this earlier, the tree of life, it's 12 kinds of fruits, and uh, it was for the healing of the nations. The, the point there in this whole thing is that there was no fear in the presence of God. We were completely open to Him, present with Him on the broad street. There was no shame. For past sins now forgiven, there was no want for food or drink, no need for light, given that He provided that. There was no dread of night because the Lord provided all those things because the street, remember, is located where? In the presence of the throne of God and the Lamb and the river that flows down the street. Now, it was part of this city... Rome, one of the things, if you ever get over there, you ever have opportunity, the Romans, uh, I, you know, they were many things, but one of the things they were with certainty were road builders. They built roads all over the place, and, and we walked on many a road that were built by the ancient Romans, and it, and it enabled the empire for more than 200 years to maintain uh, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that is, by the sword. But nevertheless, there was there. But also for commerce. And the interesting thing about this is it wasn't for war. You know, our highway systems were built for... Yeah. It wasn't so that you could get to California fast. It was so that military equipment could get to California fast. Did you know that? Yeah. So, it wasn't for that. It wasn't for that and it wasn't for commerce. What it was for was for people to gather to worship. And then finally, the the street is uh, pure gold like transparent glass. Now, I had to do just a little bit of research here. And I'll tell you why I had to do the uh, research. And that's because... 
I had a logical problem. Does anybody know what my logical problem is? If it's transparent, you can't see it. <laughs> I mean, I can only assume that if God said something is transparent, that means it would be perfect in its transparency. So that's a problem for me. So I had to figure out, well, let's look at this word. Turns out this is the only time this word is ever used in the entire Bible. Ever. And it's got a few of its little brothers and sisters hanging around in the Bible. But this word probably actually should be translated as translucent. There is a difference. But there's even more because it turns out that it's a little bit packed from ancient Greece. All right. Not from the Bible. We have it one time. But what it has is this notion of a growing, a growing brightness. And that the notion of that comes from one of the words that is directly related to this word, which means to, for the sun to rise, for the sun to come up in the east and as it bursts forth. And so when you think of all the gems that the city is made of, what you should probably think of is this cascading colors running up and down the street that are just gorgeous and beautiful and translucent so that you, when you look at it, it has depth. It has this tremendous uh, depth. The other thing, and just as kind of an aside, but not quite, is that you can see through gold already. Yeah? You didn't know that? Do you know that that's what they put on the visors of astronauts' helmets? Got any NASA folks here? Yeah, that's gold. You see the color on there? That's gold. Now, it's thin, but you can see through it, you know, and who knows how God is, is going to work that. But part of the reason for all of this with the gold is that everyone knows that, when, well, maybe not everyone. Yeah, I kind of didn't know it. I, I went and worked on a gold mine for not long, a couple days. Gold, when you find it in its nugget form, looks pretty pure to me. Uh, yeah, gold fever is a real thing, by the way. Oh, gold. <laughs> Give it to me. No, you can't have it. Go away. So, okay. All right. So, I'll leave. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not the way jewelers want it. Because it has all manner of other things inside of it. So, last week I gave you the illustration which... Uh, many of you have heard before about how you have to smelt it. You have to get rid of the impurities. And that's what the Lord uh, does here. He makes it uh, perfect. And the quality of the gold that John saw was transparent, a translucent uh, quality about it. And God's ability to purify is not just related only to gold. Because God, in order to have a purified New Jerusalem, there has to be a purified people who occupy it. In John, 1 John 1, 9, he says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God's in the business of, of purifying us. And we should not be surprised, as the Scripture says, uh, when we find ourselves in that 
process. So not only is God's holy city pure by His design, but so are we, its citizens. Then we, we have here the, this, the tree of life. We first hear of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and 9. And Adam and Eve were able to eat freely uh, from this tree until, until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and, and evil. They were banished from the garden and the Lord station, uh, stationed cherubim there uh, with the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way. Now in Revelation 22, with all things restored in the new heavens and the new earth, the redeemed are sinlessly uh, innocent and they may once again eat freely of the tree of life. I mean, and it, what it represents is immortality. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve ate, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they disobeyed God. They were denied access to the tree of life, and they experienced an immediate spiritual death, and then ultimately a physical death. And then the sacrificial system then came and enabled people to experience atonement for their sins temporarily in order to maintain fellowship with God. Now, all of that pointed to the Lamb of God, who, being hanged on a tree, became a curse for us, took away our sins, enabled us to enjoy this unbreakable, intimate, and everlasting relationship with God. In Revelation 2.7, the Spirit tells the church at Ephesus, and thereby all the redeemed, I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. So finally, in Revelation 22, at the, the culmination of all things and being now in the eternal state, God's redeemed are once again in the garden, enjoying him. And the leaves of the nations, the healing that's, that's there. Matthew Henry argued that, that they were simply a reminder for, uh, to us about God's faithfulness. You know, I mean, even in literature, so of course I go to my favorite author, J.R.R. Tolkien. He used a tree to indicate the health of Minas Tirith, the uh, city of Gondor. And the leaves were gone. The, the, the city was, uh, was gone, essentially. And as we look at this, we see the throne of God and of the Lamb. In uh, the first three verses, we're told about it twice and about the river that runs from it that's located in the, in the, the, min, uh, the middle of, of everything. I, the centrality of the throne of God should give you great comfort. Because it signifies God's, not only God's sovereign right to rule, but in that day the fact that he is sovereignly uh, ruling uh, in a way that we see with our eyes. I mean, he's sovereignly ruling uh, now, but it, it's, this is different. Different in the sense of our perspective of what's happening. Now, I don't know if it's more than ever because... 
he sees the day approaching, or at least to a high level that he has in the past, but the enemy is at work. The enemy is working hard during this time. He not only seeks to divide believers and stir up division and strife and hate, but what he wants to do especially is isolate you. Do not allow yourself to be isolated in any way. Reach out. Do not isolate. Do not allow divisions based on temporal surface issues to cause. I mean, just think of, I can't tell you the stories I've heard over the last several weeks about Thanksgiving meals. You and I must not fall into traps that Satan sets. We must be kind and tender-hearted toward one another, seeing that our God reigns. I'm reminded of six little words from the book of Esther for such a time as this. I mean, we all face times of fear. We face times of doubt. There are times when we wonder, why why me, Lord? Yet God is there to remind us that He has been with us all along. He has been with us the entire time and that He will continue to be with us to guide and protect us because for such a time as this shows God's presence and His providence. I mean, whether we uh, hesitate to move forward in His strength or not, He is with us. Nothing has ever taken God by surprise. I know you've heard that. You hear that. You may even tell it to yourself. But God has never been surprised. Oh my, what, what shall I do now? God knows. He is on the throne. He is sovereign over all. He has a plan and He's working it out with His people and in the, the world. I'm saying all of that to come to a place to say that your prayers matter. Your voice matters. You can, in these times where depression and anxiety are up, where suicidal ideations are up, in certain age communities higher than they ever have been since recording that kind of data, even in that, we can choose to move forward with dignity and grace and compassion. Because otherwise, we will become filled with bitterness and anger and jealousy. God forbid, hatred. We can choose to stay engaged because we know what will be. We know the end of the book. God's got this. God's got us. He is powerful and able to do far more than we could ever imagine. He's on His throne, ruling over His dominion. And His heart is filled with compassion and love for us, His people. Father, 
Lord, we can only imagine what the eternal state will look like. But I pray that each one of us knows to some measure what it will feel like. Lord, while we may not always feel that we are in Your presence, those of us who know You have felt it. Even if only for a brief moment. To capture that and to magnify that in innumerable amount of times. That's what we will have. So we thank You. We praise You. Encourage us. Strengthen us to live lives that are worthy of Your calling. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.